Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I have a lot of disparate interests and I can go down a rabbit hole, an article of archaeology, and I went down a rabbit hole last night in my bird book looking for a certain titmouse I remember reading about years ago. I mean, it's like I I'm, have avid uh, foraging instincts for researching things. And so I never thought in terms of I'm going to buck the system. I just thought from day to day, minute to minute, lily pad to lily pad, what am I interested in? And I very rarely thought about the entire pond. That was Holland Taylor. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. few things I feel comfortable celebrating in 2020. It's been a fairly gloomy six months, which is, uh, I realize, definitely an understatement. How about cataclysmic? Catastrophic? Something with a C? I don't know. It's been rough. You get the point. However, I'm overjoyed that on today's show, we have the opportunity to celebrate the life and career of actress Holland Taylor. She's best known for her television roles on shows like The Practice and Two and a Half Men. There are also films like Legally Blonde, Romancing the Stone, and The Truman Show. But 2020 has been a kind of landmark year for her. First, in the sequel of To All the Boys I Loved Before, which my sister insists I need to see. I want to believe her, I'm just not sure. And then there's Hollywood, the Ian Brennan, Ryan Murphy-created miniseries on Netflix. Set in post-World War II, 
It's about a group of actors, directors, and producers trying to change the fabric of the film industry for the better. If you have not seen it, it's a piece of highly entertaining revisionist history. While Holland is wonderful in all the projects I just mentioned, it's this play that I keep coming back to. In 2010, Holland debuted her production, A Van, a candid portrait of the late, great Governor Ann Richards. She also wrote the play after years of tireless research. The production was a hit, opening across the country from Galveston, Texas, to the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., to, eventually, playing Broadway. It is now, in this unusual COVID moment, about to be available online. On Friday, June 19th, as a part of their Great Performances series, PBS will be distributing the play. It is a transcendent piece of theater, but forget my testimonial. Here's a clip from Anne. Can you imagine if I were your mother-in-law? I could fix you. Now, before I go any further, I should probably mention, uh, since you could be from all over the country, you might think that I was the first female uh, governor of Texas, so I, I want to rush to disabuse you of that notion. Texas elected its first female governor way back in the 1920s. Her name was Ma Ferguson. Now, Ma was called Ma because she was married to a man named Ma. <laughs> this is a pretty sharp crab. <laughs> and uh, Pa was governor of Texas. He got impeached for selling pardons to people in the penitentiary. So, so uh, yeah, so when they carted Pa off to the pen himself, Ma was elected in his stead. Her, her campaign slogan was two governors for the price of one. <laughs> Holland's performance as Governor Richards really is something to behold. She has a kind of uniquely commanding presence playing Richards. But that's true of all her work, across all mediums, stage, film, television. As she'll tell you, she's not one for subservient roles, contrary to her contemporaries, who are often forced to play more docile characters. Whether it was by design or not, her career has routinely bucked the patriarchal system of movie making. Since childhood, Holland has always blazed a trail of her own, banged her drum to her own beat. Of course, it wasn't always easy or without complications, but hell, what of value has ever come easy? without complications. So, for those who've been watching Holland since time immemorial, who've wondered, who is that dominating patrician presence on screen? Who is that woman so forceful and confident? For those curious, as I was, here she is, Holland Taylor at 77, commanding as ever. Holland Taylor, thank you so much for being here. You and I uh, just went through what could only be called a harrowing process. <laughs> a harrowing technical adventure with an old lady and a young techie, <laughs> a young brilliant techie. Well, I kept up. 
And we're starting only 30 minutes late. And when we do the next one of these in person, which we will do one day, I'll just arrive 30 minutes late through no fault of my own, I assure you. But I probably will be 30 minutes late to that. So we'll, we'll do it that way. <laughs> Can I ask you, um, we were fiddling around with the computers, but how are you doing right now? I have my, I won't say ups and downs because it's really more all over the map. Uh-huh. I have my changing moods. Um, sometimes I think I the important thing is to really be here for it, to not not acknowledge it. So I know what's happening. It's close to the surface of my thought. I'm also trying at the same time to say this could be over or very different in a matter of months. There could be truly mitigating medical discoveries, treatments and vaccines. There could be things that would happen that will change this in a moment. And then we will have an extraordinary aftermath to deal with. So the fact is, when something is called once in a century, hold on to your hat because it will affect every single aspect of life. So I actually find the whole thing so extraordinarily fascinating. And uh, I like to be entertained by a movie or something at night. Mm -hmm. uh, the more light and frivolous it is, the less interesting I find. I want to be compelled. So that for that two hours, I can really enjoy a piece and I won't think about the challenges of this time. I was thinking for you that you are someone that seems deeply comfortable with yourself and being alone in isolation. And I, and I bring this up because um, for people who don't know, you're born and raised in Philadelphia. You have two step siblings, but by the time you come of age, they're not in the house anymore. So you're really alone all the time. You described yourself as a child that didn't know what to do with themselves. I was distressed and agitated left to my own devices. Boy, you, that, you do your research. <laughs> you know, I would not think many interviews would be interested in hearing that. But that is very true. And I think that it has, it has been, it was a foundation both strong and flawed in that it certainly probably damaged my ability to bond with others and to be totally comfortable when bonded with others. That's why, like, for instance, I am very enlivened by an engagement with others. I'm very enlivened, like the whole, my whole years sort of at the head of the army that did Anne. Was, it was very enlivening. I loved the troops. I loved all that we did. And yet, at the same time, I need a certain amount of time to be alone. And I, I don't think I recharge with others, I recharge alone. And I spend myself with others. And then I go back to a well of some kind when I'm by myself. So I did learn to be by myself, but I don't think it was a very, I don't think it made for a very happy childhood because I obviously had to learn to tolerate it. At the time, did you feel like you weren't a happy child? I think I felt at sea, which is not happy. I would not call it unhappy, but I think if you're sort of at a loss for what to do, I mean, I think all children need direction, but I am absolutely wildly curious 
But as a child, you, you don't know how to follow your curiosities. You don't know where to go, and you don't have any agency to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I was restless. I guess, I mean, I do have a sort of an ADD. So it's, it's, I skip from thing to thing. As a child, to just be calm enough to be still and read a book for hours, it had to be a really good book. But I think that I had a real sense of not, simply not knowing what to do with myself. When do, you, when do you think you figured out what to do with yourself? Well, I have periods of going right back to that mental place. I, I have periods. Of, it's kind of almost a mood. It's, it's not exactly lonely because it has a slightly different quality to it. I almost have to remember. You don't self-direct well, so you've got to treat yourself as though you're somebody else and you're giving them some ideas of what they should do with themselves. You know, truly. I truly do that. I think about it that way. Like, what would be a good schedule? So you have two different voices. One that says maybe rudderless and nomadic is the way to be. Yes. The other says, I don't know if my mother or father would approve of this. Maybe we got to add some structure, some columns to this life. Well, I, I know I'm not so sure it's my mother or father. I think it's my smarter self, my self that should know better, knows that I really thrive when I have a structure because uh, it just works better for me in terms of not just productivity, but pleasure. Uh, Developing disciplines. Uh, When I live a very disciplined life, I'm always very happy. I know. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it annoying, though? I go in pockets (laughs) where all of a sudden I, I turn like militaristic. And yes. I'm like, yes, this is the true version of myself. And then you check in a week later and it's all gone to shit. No, it's all gone. Well, like when, when, I, when I'm in a play, that's a very rigid structure. Uh-huh. I mean, it's painfully rigid and very demanding. But then the pleasures within it when your, your time is your own. That's why I think finishing a play at night is so unbelievably satisfying. Because mm-hmm. you're, you have, you know, it's, it's, it's a clear arc of, of action. You start it, you swell through it, you rise through it, you ride through it, you come to a good conclusion, hopefully, and it's a real completion. And also a sense of agency. Nobody's interfering with you. I mean, it's not like doing a film where when you see the final product, you go, well, that's not the way I would have cut it, but okay. <laughs> I think what we're kind of getting at, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it's beyond structure and I have this moment in college. You go to Bennington in Vermont, and there's this scene you've described that I, I want to relay here, but I really would like you to bring me to it. Your first boyfriend in college <laughs> is in the other room. <laughs> I know where you're going now. <laughs> and from the other room, oh my God. in a way that one could call romantic, but I'm not sure it is romantic. <laughs> He speaks of marriage. Yes. And in this moment, while you're in the other room, you look down at the shower floor. Yes. I was wondering if you got that I was in the shower. Yes. The water is swirling around the drain. You are 20, 21 years old at this time? I was a senior in college. Where were you in that moment? I was contemplating a disastrous future. (laughs) <laughs> and but I also but tell, to tell you the truth, I wasn't really contemplating it. I was perceiving. I was getting the warning mm-hmm. from the drain. I, I was getting the Ed memoir 
from the drain of that shower that well, I adored this man, and he has he has since died, which is so painful. He was a wonderful, wonderful, charming man. It was just so far from what would ever happen, and that and that he had never mentioned it before, and maybe he maybe he called it out as an idea from the other room, from the safety of another room. Maybe for him, he really thought that's where we were going. Nothing like that had ever entered my head, never for a moment. The idea of marriage never entered your head? No. No. I think I was really inoculated against it. And also, it didn't fit into any picture that I had. I was going to be an actress in the American theater. I was going to live that life. And that life is quite a life. It's full of traditions and demands and attractions and people and very definable pleasures and work. And, and it was, I was going to be a member of that society. Of course, now the theater of my imagination that I was going to join was sort of the theater of the Luntz and uh, Catherine Cornell and all of those people. That theater had long since mm-hmm. stopped existing. But that was the one I wanted the life in. And I, I just, just the marriage did not fit in there at all. This may be a naive question, but you're a woman coming of age in the 60s. I imagine many of the women around you, if you looked around the classroom and you asked them, what do you want to do with your life? A great deal of them would have said, yeah, maybe I want to work, but... I do want kids. I do want marriage. I think that's true. I think probably at, at Bennington, uh, uh, there, there might have been fractionally less because of just the nature of the school and who, people who wanted to come to that school. But I think my, my, my sisters went to Smith, and that was certainly, they were they graduated from college and got married. One of them got married when she was a senior in college. I mean, that was what they, that was the norm, and that was absolutely the norm. You know, it's so interesting uh, I'm sure it has to do with whatever matrix of my mind structure makes me have ADD. I never thought about it that way. My thoughts, I mean, it's irritate Sarah no end because I sometimes really am just, I don't know where the hell I am. I have a lot of disparate interests and I can go down a rabbit hole, an article of archaeology, and I went down a rabbit hole last night in my bird book looking for a certain titmouse I remember reading about years ago. I mean, it's like I I'm, have avid uh, foraging instincts for researching things. And so, I, I mean, I did. I never thought in terms of I'm going to buck the system. I just thought from day to day, minute to minute, lily pad to lily pad, what am I interested in? And I ne- very rarely thought about the entire pond. Catherine Hepburn once said that she would have been a terrible mother, that there was no way that she could be who she was as a professional woman and that she would not want to do anything that she couldn't do well. That resonates with me, although I would uh, scarcely compare myself with that extraordinary creature. And she was. And she was full of flaws. I mean, she's, I'm, I knew her so superficially, it's hardly worth mentioning, but up close and personal, her seeming rejoicing in her wonderfulness and her arrogance was was something to behold, but she she was fascinating and she was extraordinary, extraordinarily independent and she did do great things. And she she also portrayed 
a kind of character that had a big social impact. Now, that's not something I think of actors doing because they're actors. That had to do with her persona in the world. Mm. But she never got away from it as an actress. She, she never got lost in any character, ever. Um, and that wasn't what she was out to do. But I absolutely can can resonate with every word of that statement. I could not imagine being a mother. I, ca- I cannot imagine. First of all, I, well, it's, it's like I, it's literally my, the realist in me doesn't even let me imagine it because it could just never happen. I, even, even the experience of the several times uh, when I've had dogs, my attachment level is so, uh, so empathetic that I am really be- become ridiculous. I, the, the degree to which I worry if they're having a bad time, if they're lonely, if they this, I mean, I just literally, even at my advanced age, it's still very hard for me not to anthropomorphize my dog and assume she has feelings and qualities she cannot possibly have. And, you know, friends of mine who were great, great dog parents and always have thousands of dogs, they, they just go to sleep, they're fine. You know, I cannot have that attitude. So if I had a human infant as my child, I, I literally don't believe I could bear it. Wild with deprivation that I couldn't live the life that I wanted to live. So you do lead the life that you want to live. You don't accept his hand in marriage. You go to New York. I want to look at something here. This is a playbill for the Devils. It is your first uh, Broadway production. First of all, it was my first job in New York, can you imagine? And I went to an open call, which I don't even know if they have them anymore, but they did have open calls. I think they were obliged to have open calls. That particular play, the open call was really meaningful because... Uh, I mean, it was a genuine opportunity, not that I ever thought it through that way. But the fact is that if a really a, pl- a new play by Tennessee Williams, nobody's going to get cast from an open call. There are six roles. They're important roles. They're going to be offered to the actors who should play them. Uh-huh. But in The Devils, there was like 20 women who were townspeople, nuns. I got cast from this open call to to play a nun in this thing that starred Jason Robards and Anne Bancroft. And it was based on the John Whiting novel of the same title, The Devils. And it was directed by Michael Kakianis. And none of it really worked. But Bancroft was so compelling, and so was Robards, that magnificent voice, that it, it struggled along for a while. And then Annie hurt her back rather badly, and she hurt it in the middle of the show. At the end of the first act, she couldn't go on for the second act. And the standby was Zoe Caldwell. And I don't know why Zoe even took that job. And she didn't have to come to the theater. So she was at a restaurant having dinner because I guess you get the call. Anne's gone on. The show's up. We're underway. Thank you. So she goes out to dinner. So she gets a call at the restaurant. And she has to come to the theater with a full new meal in her stomach and go on the lead role in The Devils. And it was remarkable. She was great. And then she took over the role. I think on the surface of it, someone would see your resume and think, Okay, she goes to New York. She's on this Broadway production with Anne Bancroft already, right away. But it seems that the next 15 years are not terribly easy for you. You said, I can't tell you how hard scrabble, how difficult, how nickel and dime my first 15 years in New York were. It was really quite difficult. And people always thought I had money or came from money. 
but I never had a dime other than what I earned from acting. Not a dime. That's true. It was hard, but it was not wretchedly hard. I mean, I, I was, there were a lot of disappointments, I think partly because I was never an ingenue, so I could never play the parts that my age would suggest I should play. In fact, this literally happened once with Hal Prince. He said, I think I auditioned more than once, he said, you know, we are trying to figure out how we can cast you in this because you're so, this is great. You're, we, we want you to play this part, but you are simply too young. Because when we put you next to the guy that you would be opposite, it's just, you're too young to be the couple that is being written about here. So I think that my first 15 years were hard a lot for that reason. In your late 30s, in the late 70s, I believe in 77, some, somewhere around there, you are introduced to Stella Adler. Yes. I had been on a soap opera, and it was a, a wonderful stage actor did a guest shot or came on, on that show, and his name was Louis Turenne, and he was a wonderful theater actor, and I knew him from The Devils. And he came on the show, and we hadn't seen each other in those 12, 15 years or whatever. And we were talking about, you know, our history and who did I study with. And I said, well, I never really, I've studied with a few people, but I never really thought they had much to teach. They had good taste or not good taste. And they would sometimes say, the scene you just did didn't work really very well because you yada da. And I would say, Okay, interesting. But I mean, there was they were not teaching me a technique. They did not have a huge view of what it was, and they were not leaders and inspiring figures. And I had, early on, when I was first in New York, I did go to, to the Stella Adler School, and the registrar at the school put me off in some way, scared me off. I don't even remember what it was. Made me think Stella would not like me. So Louis Turenne, these 12, 13 years later, said, you of all people I know in life should be a Stella Adler student. I can't believe you are not and haven't been. And so I went back. I, I don't remember if the registrar was the same, but um, I started studying with her. And I was literally thunderstruck in the very first class because, first of all, she's a genius, brilliant, intellectually brilliant and beautiful at the same time, and stylish and fanciful and uh, temperamental and flashy and funny and Runyon-esque. She's like the Queen of England who happens to be dating a gangster. I mean, she was just the most amazing combination of qualities. I was, I was literally just gobsmacked. And also, because I had been working for 15 years, I sort of knew from the seat of my pants what acting was about. And so when she would talk about the ways to do something, the ways to study something, the way to create an effect, the way to, the way to do any number of millions of things that you do as an actor, she would say something about it. And it would be like the penny dropping again and again and again, because I had the foundation of, my, of the experience of acting to inform me that what she had just given me was a matchless, uh, advice. And of course, she called them tips. She'd say, here, I'll give you a tip. I got a million of them. I mean, she she was very, she tried to make us understand that acting was doable. It was not some impossible, ineffable, airy-fairy, neurotic thing that you had to be somebody else. I mean, it was, there were lots of things that you had to do to act. And so studying with her was, was like, I mean, I really learned stuff, and I still have my, I took notes in 
she thought I was very much too busy writing things down. She said, just listen, stop writing things down. But I, I did record, I did take notes in my tech class, and I still have them. And sometimes I re read them with such fascination for how remarkable she was and how glad I was to be her students. What are some of those tips in your notes that you still hold near and dear to your heart? It's really situational. It's not so much that they're tips that you have at the ready at every moment. It's that once you know how to do something in her, from her point of view, you just do it sort of automatically. You don't have to think how to execute it. But, uh, but one such one that is sort of an exact item of uh, an exact task is called the covered entrance. And it's just a simple thing that she said, it's very difficult to go from not being on stage to being on stage. She said, you want to be fully occupied. You want your mind to be fully occupied so that you are not thinking, oh, I'm off stage and now I'm, now I'm going to, now they can see me and now I'm on stage and you don't want to have that experience. So, I mean, it could be any number of a thousand things, but, but one obviously very good thing sometimes is since you are entering is that you're taking off a coat or you're putting on a coat. You know, you're, you're fully involved in a fairly complicated physical thing and suddenly you're center stage. You don't know how you got there. If your director is telling you, don't sit in this chair, at this point in the scene, go over to sit in that chair. And, you know, and, and a young actor might say, but why? Why would I do that? And it's like, not your, you shouldn't be asking the director why. Uh, she was very on the director's side. She would say, if your director wants you to do this and such, you're going to do that. The point is, you have to justify it from your point of view. You don't get him to tell you why. I mean, then he gives you some stupid answer you don't want. So she said, and she would just then get up and demonstrate it six different ways. She said, I'm going to get out of this chair I'm in and sit over in that one because the sun has moved and now I'm cold and I want to move and sit in that sunny chair. Now, this is nothing that you act. It's something that you think. But believe me, it affects how you get up and how you move and how you feel when you sit down in the sun. It seems like she was more interested in interrogating one's imagination instead of their memories. Exactly correct. She would say acting is imagining yourselves within the circumstances of the play. Mm -hmm. She said, if you are playing Elizabeth I of England and having an argument with Mary, Queen of Scots, and you're imagining your grandmother from Hoboken, you're insane. You know, her, her ultimate message was that you have to understand the historical and social and, and cultural truth about the, the character that you're playing first. You have to understand all that. And then within those intellectual and feeling structures, you are a living being who is walking inside that structure and you are affected sometimes in the most light ways. But she said a light impulse in the, when you are acting in a play can carry you through the whole night. We'll be right back after a quick break. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on the storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. On the heels of thinking about acting in a... Uh, intellectual, thoughtful way 
you make the decision to go to Los Angeles. Stella told me to. So she told you to. Yeah, she told me to, and here's why. That was I'm the just time you. when <laughs> it seemed like theater producers and directors and casting people wanted more and more to be using people who were who were nationally famous. And Stella said, I think that you should see if you can do something that's a splash out there. It might might make things go better for you here. So the idea of coming out to LA to enhance my what I really wanted, which was to be a, a member of the family of theater actors, was not very practical. Because once here, I'd get another job here and another job here. And it was very hard. You'd establish a life on one coast, and then you'd get a job offer at the other coast. And it was sometimes hard to, to go. Impractical as it may have been, you did make a splash, and I want to watch something with you. It's 1980. It's a show called Bosom Buddies. I can't face seeing my hair in 1980. Oh, my God. Would you uh, Would you care to have a seat? Make yourself comfortable? Oh, Please. Well, look, darling, I... Well, go ahead. Mm. Uh, you see, <clears throat> as a young copywriter... feel as though I've literally got my finger on the pulse of the American consumer. I mean, I know what makes them tick. You know, I know what they think. I know, I know why they like green jello. I, I just thought of that. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that I'm, uh, I'm perfect for the ad game. Really? You know, you would have struck me so much more as the starving artist type prone to respiratory infections. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's uh, that's a part that's a part of me. Uh, well, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. I, I uh, you you can go, I guess, if you like, or if, if you two have business to discuss, I certainly can leave. Uh, oh no no no! Don't you leave because actually I I do have to go. I, I do I do have a have a car waiting. Okay. So it would be fun. gentlemen ought to have that chair rebeamed. <laughs> so I, I actually owe that whole chair gag to Stella in the sense that it was because I had learned certain things from her that I even came up with that whole gag. Three camera thing is like theater and we and we rehearsed it much more. We really rehearsed it. We rehearsed like you rehearse a play and we sort of put it together and they would change the script to uh, to adjust what we things that we would come up with. And Tom was such an incredible physical actor and 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 um Biscolari was too. So we always did a lot of physical things if we could. And Stella always said, take take everything from the place. Be in whatever physical situation you're in, whatever set, whatever the setting is. Behave in that set. I remember actually asking for that chair because I I think that I was doing a fish out of water scene of this mature woman in this in this kid's dorm room. And I said I wanted to react to the room or the mess and I couldn't quite find a way to really use her. And, and then I suddenly got the idea there was that epoch. They would have a beanbag chair. And I just I, I just thought intellectually, I thought, and, and I would have trouble. I couldn't, it would be hard to get down into it. And and I, it just all came to me. So I said, do we have a beanbag chair? And they brought one. They're squirming around in it and trying to pull myself upright in it, which of course you cannot do, was actually 
taxing. So when I had to suddenly appear blasé and say, really, you would have struck me more as the starving artist type with, with pulmonary illnesses or whatever, I actually almost had no air in my lungs left because I was, I had been exerting myself. So I just, just barely squeezed that line out. And I remember this today. I mean, I, I remember physically trying to be seemed to be just uh, relaxed in that moment so that I could get off that comedy line. Every day on set, you called on your representation to come for lunch. I did. I did. Oh, I don't think it was every day, but I, I at the first go, making the pilot, it was the strangest world I've ever been in, and nothing made any sense to me. Uh, even though it's sort of like a play and that you rehearse it that way, there's so many other pieces of the of the machinery and how people paved in this beautiful lot. I mean, Paramount is so beautiful, you can't even believe it. And when you leave work at night, the sky is pink and lavender and the palms are black and the sound stages are white and looming and like clouds. And where, this is the, you know, I was like 37, 38 years old and I was just overwhelmed with, uh, it was my first job here. And so it was, it was just amazing. But how people, were, I didn't know who was, you didn't know who where the authority was. There was there was a million producers. There were network people that came. There were suits that came and watched with their arms folded. There were uh, people with all different degrees of bossiness, you know, circling around you. You just didn't know where the shape was of anything. And I told her what happened this morning. And I said, "So that's crazy, right? I mean, that's that's insane, right?" She said, "Absolutely." I said, "Oh." Okay. Then this other thing happened, and I would tell her another thing. And I'd say, and that also, that's quite, that's insane, right? That's an insane way to behave, right? And she said, well, absolutely, certainly is. I said, oh, I see. What you're telling me is that everything is crazy out here. And it was. What do you mean by crazy when you're looking back at it now? I think the shapelessness of it, like who's in charge here, I think that there was there is an element of just so many cooks that is so different from the theater. Sometimes the director is not really that powerful in the sense of the larger picture, you know, and who, where are the ideas coming from and where is the direction coming from and where are the corrections coming from and where is the power? And you just sort of don't know where to look. Why do you call it a failing? I was not very ambitious in the sense that I am a perfectionist and I know quality when I see it and I know quality when I do it and when I'm part of it. And I know value when I encounter it. I wanted to be in good things. I wanted to do good and be good. I wanted to be very interested in what I did. I wanted it to be of value. But in terms of thrusting myself forward as an entity, I want to be a success. I never thought that way. And I, I, I expect if I explored it much, which I have never, I would find that it's some, you know, unfortunate failing, that it's, that it's really kind of too bad. I've not been ambitious. I just did not have any of the trappings of somebody who was ambitious to become a big star. I never did any of the things that people do to have that happen. Well, I don't know. You know, you're in a profession. And the fact is, the more important you are 
in the lexicon of the profession you're in, the greater are your opportunities to do the very things I wanted to do. To, to, to play roles that were great and demanding, that were real literature, that were a real quality, that had substance, that uh, gave me the opportunity to expand myself in ways that lesser roles would never. I mean, like the perfect comparison is Sarah. Sarah wants to play the great roles. She wants to be stretched to her limit. She wants to play horrible people and fascinating people and complex characters. She has a tremendous appetite for it that you could call ambition. It's not an ambition for herself to be famous. It's ambition. She has an ambition to play the great roles, to have great, to do great work with great directors and great cinematographers. She just could, she just has a tremendous appetite for that. And I never was like that. The tremendous uh, energy and sacrifice it takes to reach for those stars. Something was just not in my persona or my makeup. This is a better word. And now do you feel some regret about not pursuing some of that more vigorously? I think if the regret is anything, it's just the regret of not not examining it, not looking at it more closely. But I'm not big for, on regret. I don't see the point in engaging in regretful thoughts. I mean, of course, one has fleeting thoughts of that kind about all kinds of things in life. It's not a valuable thing to to wallow in. Putting a pause on the conversation for a second. If you've been enjoying the past half hour with Holland, I assure you, stick around. The best is yet to come. But for a moment, while I have you here, a favor. If you recently discovered this show or been listening since we started in 2016, you've probably heard me ask for help in the past. Lots of podcasts ask for donations, but I know most of us, myself included, don't exactly have extra money in this time. Instead, if you can, if you like what we try to do on this show, we'd really appreciate it if you shared your enthusiasm for the podcast online, either on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or if you don't use those platforms, just sharing the show with a friend, a family member, someone you think that could benefit from listening to the kind of dialogue we try to have here. Talks, I hope, from the heart. Talks that avoid all the nonsense and all the superficial stuff that doesn't serve us as people. Talks, ideally, that unify us in their vulnerability and imperfections. If you're looking for other ways to help us out, aside from sharing this podcast, leaving a review on iTunes is always great. Subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen, even better. Whatever you can do, I really appreciate it. Independently operated as we are, there's no mechanism, no apparatus, for new listeners to magically discover this show. And so it's on us, both you at home and me here in this closet, to keep telling people about what we do on Talk Easy. Every week, rain or shine. And that's all I got. Thank you for listening and supporting. And now, back to Holland Taylor.
I watched Anne last night. Oh my god. There's a lot to unpack here, but but before we get into your production of it, we need to go to somewhere between 2003 and 2005. You are dining with an old friend named Liz Smith at a restaurant now closed called Le Cirque. To set the scene, you have to dress up for this restaurant. You have to come uptown. You're already annoyed with this. The plan, as old friends make, is to talk about friends and the past and the talk present. Shit. And the, yes, to talk absolutely. shit. What we did many times, many countless, countless lunches and dinners at Mexican restaurants over a couple of margs. I mean, countless. So why did she change the plan on you? Well... You know, I don't know if she had any design, but she she had very little time to do what she wanted. She was an incredibly busy columnist. She was probably one of the number one columnists. She was, you know, flying pretty strong during that period, still, I think. And if she, I was only in town very briefly, and we were really dear old friends and had not seen each other much. And so she had, she wanted to make time to visit with me. But she didn't have much time. And so she thought I wouldn't mind, uh, given that her lunch guest that day at Le Cirque was someone she thought I'd enjoy. But she did, that was just her own thinking. She didn't say that to me. Mm-hmm. All she said was, no, well, you have to meet me at Le Cirque. I don't have any other opportunity to see you. So, And um, I said, oh, God, okay, well, who's coming? <laughs> she said... <laughs> Governor Richards. And I mean, Governor Richards, I first of all, I knew they were dear friends, but because I was based in LA, I, I had never met them together. I'd never met Ann Richards. And, but she was a great heroine, and I knew a lot about her because she had long been a very close friend of Liz's. So, I mean, I was just beside myself. And I said, oh, I, I, I wanted to say, don't you know, I think I said, don't, don't, I don't want to sit next to her. She said, well, you're hardly going to avoid it. It's just going to be us. So um, I did sit next to her and she was one of those people that you're so joyous. You're so happy to meet. You can't believe you're meeting them. She was so great. What was your strongest immediate impression of her? How beautiful she was. She had a smile that, well, not for nothing. I mean, she had charm and charisma to that carried her through an incredible life. And uh, it was still going strong. And she was, but she was so, put you so at ease. I mean, I know I'm speaking in banalities, but it's true of her that for all of her greatness, and she was great, she uh, was very open to people, very responsive, very personable and friendly, and definitely connect. I mean, you connect. She, she, she wasn't, she was really would see you. You could see her seeing you. You knew you were really connected with her, those this was piercing blue eyes. And, but, but she puts you at your ease. I told her one story and one joke. And she laughed heartily at both of them. It was very, very satisfying. Do you still remember that you told two jokes? I do. I remember the story and the joke. Well, I'd love to hear one. Well, when the story was too long, it was about how uh, when I was in Moose Murders, which was this disastrous flop that I took over for Eve Arden in and, and just so that they could open it. So I wasn't really much scarred by it. The play was a terrible vanity production of a, of a terrible play with some sort of funny dialogue. And it was just a hodgepodge and just a miserable production. But it, it ended on a, um, a blackout line. And I was the star of this thing. I took over for Eve Arden. I learned it in a week. And my 
line, this blackout line was my line, and it was a very weak blackout line. And the whole point of a blackout is something uproariously funny that caps the whole evening and ends the show. The lights blink off, black, and the curtain comes down, and it's all over. Everybody knows it's over, and it's all very satisfying. So every night I'd have to say this kind of half-assed blackout line, and I say the blackout line with my usual brio and this sort of pathetic laughter, and the lights did not click off and the curtain did not come down. And, you know, some of the actors started drifting off or slinking off stage. <laughs> and, you know, I was the center where I had to have the curtain call. And I said, get back here. Grabbed, extended my hands out, you know, took hands and bowed and got through. I, I mean, it's just a debacle. So I told her that. She thought that was hysterically funny. And the other thing was sort of, I guess I made a joke in that it was would not be a joke to your public uh, or probably you even in the sense that you'd have to really know Liz Smith and know what her column was like to get it. But I said to Dan Richards, I said, now, Governor Richards, I want to assure you that anything you say at this luncheon, I mean, regarding Liz's column, you can be absolutely confident that anything that you say in, in this lunch that's private will appear in her column. And additionally, it will be wrong. And she literally fell out of her chair because Liz was famous for for saying things, not with any malice, but she'd say things that somebody said, that's the secret, or she'd say something and she'd get it wrong. A perfect example was Moose Murders. She wrote in her column about how I learned this part and did it and went on in one month with one month's rehearsal. And I said, Lizzie, that's what rehearsal usually is. It was a week. This is the most humiliating column item I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I, I will say, in my research, I didn't find that column. So I think you're okay. I think you're okay. It was there. So break this down for people unfamiliar. You wrote this play. It's about Governor Ann Richards. But for the uninitiated, really at your core, why did you need to do this? Well, I'd always admired her. She was heroic. She was a wonderful figure. Uh, larger than life in every way. But when she died, uh, kind of unexpectedly and very young, she was only 73, had cancer, and she died very shortly thereafter, less than six months, I think. And she was in Texas. I didn't really know what was happening, and suddenly she was dead. And I was uh, mournful to an unnatural degree, given that she was not a personal person in my life. Having met her was not the point. Uh, and it went on. And like, you know, I, I felt I felt cheated. I felt uh, I, I felt that she'd been stolen from, well, f- me, I thought first, but then I thought from the country. She's been stolen from us. This wonderful American voice, this wonderful reassuring figure. That picture that you've got up now is the last formal portrait of her taken. Uh, by Platon, that fantastic photographer. And I love this picture because while she seems to be somewhat maybe smiling a little bit, she's not working at being Ann Richards at all. She seems neutral and serene, uh, content. She's content because she has no choice but be, to be content. I mean, it's a, it's a picture of acceptance and knowing and seeing. And... Um, it's interesting because that photographer who took that picture, Platon, was unbeknownst to me selected as the photographer who did the did the portrait up for our poster. Mm-hmm. 
And that kind of thing happened from the minute I started working on this play. This play is under a special star. Is that serendipity? No. It's something bigger than that. I actually think it's all interconnected. You know, the, the good fortune that attended every aspect of my doing this play is unequaled in any experience I've ever heard anybody have in, in the theater. I mean, first of all, I was 60-some years old that I would suddenly say, I'm going to research because it took years. Because what happened was when I was so mournful that I couldn't shake it, I thought something strange is happening. And I thought, I had, what can I do? I wanted to do something creative. I think we all do when, when we have grief or we have anything that's disturbing or upsetting that way. We, we, want to, we want to do something about it. We want to make something. We want to create something. And so I'm an actress, so I thought I, I could act her. I, there could, you know, I knew a little bit about her life. I thought that that ten-year period from when she quit drinking to become to when she became governor, that period that could that could be a movie of the week or a movie or something. And and I thought I, I got to do that. I, I I could play her. And and I thought you know I know I'm friendly with George Clooney or with Norman Lear guys like that who loved her. And they they would produce it. And, and I never did anything about it. And and one day, like it's four months later, I'm driving to work. I was doing two and a half men at the time, and I, and I suddenly realized you aren't doing anything about it because it isn't a movie, or a play, or a movie of the week, or anything for television. It's a live theater performance, live one on one, direct relationship with the audience because that's what she's all about. And so I literally pulled over because I was so overcome with this. Concept. I have never pulled over to think about something in my life. And I was overwhelmed with ideas for what it would be for like the four or five organizing principles of that play, which remained the organizing principles of the play. Flooded my mind. I My task was clear. I had to get in a position to do research. I would have to research her so that I understood the material that I needed to recreate her persona, which is all I wanted to do, recreate the persona in such a way so that that hologram or whatever you might want to call it of her, that echo of her, that recreation of her, would carry with it some of the capacity to inspire that she did, that she had on me and everyone who encountered her. And that is exactly what I set out to do. And I did it. And it was a very enormous undertaking and something I had no reason to think that I could do. How do you make it through eight performances a week? Uh, you, you don't do much else, that's for sure, particularly if you have a two-and-a-half-hour period required to get ready. Makeup, hair, wig, warming up, clothes, body suit, you know. The, but the, the play is, is uh, interesting. If the material is interesting, it's different every night in some flavor or other. The audience changes it. It's a challenge. What's, God, what's the audience going to be like tonight? In a play like that, the task is so huge, you never tire of it. But mentally, it must be draining. I mean, I got drained because I was physically not well. I mean, I, I never really recovered. I got the flu early in the run. I had to play while I had it. It was it was it cost too much. I never could never really got strong again. So and also that run was 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 long. It was too long, and it, and eight a week was too many for that. But it wasn't because of the nature of acting. It was just I got worn out. I got really worn out. And I think this happens often in people 
the place you see them at the end of a long run in a musical and they're a shadow of their former selves. I think Patty told me after one of her shows, she was just a shell for the longest time. You feel like you're just having, having a mental breakdown. So there are many scenes to talk about in this play. There's one I want to unpack with you here. You're reenacting the office of Governor Ann Richards. You're on the phone. This goes on for about 25 to 30 minutes. I may have the timing off. But there's one call where you have this back and forth with a family member. (laughs) He needs you to bail him out. He screwed up. And he needs something like $8,000 and some change. Uh, it's actually, a, he's a staffer. He's not a family member. He's a staffer. Okay. He's a staffer. Yeah. But you know why I got that confused? It's because she had an ability to treat her staffers like they were family. Yeah, exactly true. So she relents. She says yes. She goes to her checkbook. She writes out the check, the dollar amount to the cent. Mm-hmm. The call ends. You get up. You walk towards the chair and you turn your back to the audience Mm -hmm. and you're staring at the wall and then you just wave your hand, almost like your fists are going up in some Mm -hmm. way, Mm -hmm. but it's clear that it's a release and everyone Mm -hmm. laughs. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, there are many profound passages in the play, but in that moment... I felt like you said everything mm. without saying anything. Mm. Mm. That's a very great compliment. That's a very, 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 very satisfying to hear because it's it's very interesting. That particular action, physical action, was I, I did not write it. I mean, it was a time when she had been beaten down by circumstances. She had to, she, this young staffer had put her on a gift plane trip but by some some donor had provided a plane trip for her to go somewhere. Uh, and he he turned out to have something in his background which came up as a real problem. She could not therefore accept that as a, as a, as a gift to the governor to fly. So she had to pay for it. She had to pay for it out of personal money. Now, now, now in this day and age, the way politicians behave, they would pay for it out of campaign funds. But she actually says... I can't go to campaign funds for this. And she's furious at him. She says, I'm not about to drag the sack to donors who are generous to me because they believe I am good for Texas. Tell them I need this whole big bunch of more money because this kid I stupidly gave an important job to screwed up. So she's very frustrated by the situation. And it's more than a month's pay. Ann Richards never had it. Only had the money that she made. As governor, she made $88,000 a year. So $8,000 was, you know, whatever, a month, more than a month's pay. So she said that. That's, that's more than a month's pay. So she was really frustrated and upset. So well into the run on Broadway. Now my done it in other theaters. So, you know, that was a couple hundred performances later. One night, I was really into it. And when I was walking back from where I put the checkbook back in my purse and heading back to the desk, actually what I was, I was looking as if out the, out the window, the window was covered by shutters. And I just pounded my fists at the heavens, you know, in a, in like, <laughs> motherfucker, you know, just <laughs> like that. And, the, and the, the, it was, it so translated to the audience that almost before I really was into it, the, the audience erupted in this, Laughter, this recognition 
laughter. And so that's a case, there's a case in point of, as Stella would say, you know, you were in the imaginative circumstances so fully that you had an impulse, which I had the freedom as an actress to decide that I'm just going to let this impulse. I mean, this is a this is a, a decision made in a millionth of a second. What did you learn about yourself as a woman in spending eight years with Anne Richards? You know, when I finished that play, I really did almost have a breakdown, as people often do when a long run is over. First of all, they lose their army of friends and cohorts in the twinkling of an eye from one day to the next. You're in the bosom of this family, and the next day they're all gone, and it's over. I think I had some kind of magical thinking going on in my head that I never really articulated. But I think I thought that when it was over, Ann Richards would be my friend. I mean, it's totally childlike construct I had. And I realized that that I had I had created an imaginary friend in a sense. I had created a friendship. And in fact, uh, a lot of her closest friends, both men and women, but mostly the women who were that she'd known since she was in her early twenties, some of whom, you know, became lawyers and professors and who were a part of her administration. Three or four of them I actually do number amongst my close friends, and I think they feel that I'm their friend too. So I did get I did get friendship. I got I got friendships, special friendships like the kind you have if you're, you know, at war or in some huge effort where you're really joined together in a commonality and common feelings and common understanding. So I mean, I wasn't thinking that I was doing that, but I was getting that. And I think that although I didn't have her to then meet and greet and sit down with and visit, uh, I did get her as a friend in that she she is uh, part of my life. I'm the actual person, I really know her very well. I know a lot about her where I'm really... Uh, certain aspects of her. I've seen so many hours of film of her. I've read, I know so much private information by which I don't mean anything secretive. I just mean personal. That I really do feel her as a presence in my life. So I could never have known any of this. I just know it was important for me to recreate that persona, to have it in the American culture. Can I play a part of an interview with her for you? Absolutely. I know people who are scared to death to be alone. And as you age, believe me, it's a big deal. Your friends begin to die on you, and your mates begin to die, and all of a sudden there you are alone. So if I were to tell uh, young people today anything that I, I could think of that I think is a good preparation for life is to... Try to find out how to be interesting <laughs> and prepare for living alone. Learn to love yourself. Learn to like your own company because sooner or later you're going to be required, you're going to be required to do it. Wow. Hmm. I wish she had lived longer to have to uh, have that problem. 
Mm -hmm. I wish you'd had that problem longer. The other part of it, which is what I'm curious about, do you like your own company? I think she was very different from me in that she she was nourished by being with people. As I mentioned earlier, I am nourished to a certain degree by recharging my batteries in, the, in quiet and in solitude. I used to have a section in the play that was that she exactly said it. And I liked that moment because I knew I was saying it right because I just would copy her. Uh, I mean, I would just try to mimic it as best I could. I'm not that good, but it was, it was uh, I feed off of people. People give me energy. I just suck everything out of an audience and out of my friends. I literally absorb them into my being. And the absence of the person sort of leaves me um, depleted and sort of wrung out. But when I'm with people, I feel energized and excited and ready to take on anything. And I, I you know, when I heard that, and, I, and then he cut it, the, my director cut it. He said, no, you don't need that. <laughs> okay. But it was, it's very telling what she says. So I'm really, I'm really opposite her to a certain extent. But I am very nourished by social activity. I'm very nourished by engagement. And a project to to degree. I mean, I mean, I'm nourished by a task that involves others. She just wanted to be with people, and uh, she did not have the opportunity to have to learn to have that much solitude time because she didn't live long enough. So, when we are allowed to leave our homes again, let's try to imagine this future together. What do you want for yourself? Well, it's partly my age. I really want to see certain foreign cities. I mean, I traveled a lot when I was younger, when I first started making money, and I had money that I could travel, so every opportunity I did. But I ended up going again and again and again to London because I wanted to go to the theater. I would go to London and go to the theater every single night uh, and every matinee. And I would do the same with New York if I was based here. And I, there was about... 10 years when I went to Paris every year uh, or France, someplace in France. And I, you know, I just, and I went, I once had been to Italy. I mean, I just been sort of stupid about it. And now I have a real hunger to see uh, Japan, to see just one of the ancient Japanese cities, to see Florence. Uh, I long to see Florence. I would, there are various parts of the world I would really like to see. And this is so typical what happens to people when they, they get old. They suddenly think, Jesus, God, I haven't seen these cities. I must do that. And I do want to do that. I never see myself retiring. Hmm. And so I think you know, that to be working as an actor until you drop is a pretty matchless experience. And I... You know, my career has only improved, really, in terms of the kinds of things that I'm offered and the opportunities that I've had and wonderful people and wonderful talents that I've met. And I say, send it up. You know, more of that. Thank you. As a child in Philadelphia, you knew you wanted to act. Mm -hmm. You couldn't quite articulate that need, but you knew you needed to do it. I think when I was about 12, 11, 12, 13, it really became a very real thing. So it's, it's been a 
55, 60 year long journey of, of doing mm-hmm. this or, or knowing that you mm-hmm. want to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you any closer to an answer as to why you feel like you need to act, that you need to express in this way? Well, I, I've never really thought about it that way. I've never really asked myself. It's just, I guess, if I, in fact, I marvel at the occasional, uh, I meet somebody who's like very smart, very intellectually smart, very attractive, fun person, and they don't know what they want to do. It's like, I, I, can't, I, I can't even imagine such a state. Imagine not knowing what you wanted to do, because I always have. So I've never really questioned it. I think I had a certain histrionic impulse, but my, that histrionic impulse was no more gifted or pronounced than my ability to draw, which is sort of rudimentary. I just have a natural ability to sort of draw. I can draw, I can look at something and replicate it with lines on paper. And, you know, I would always do that, but I, I had no drive to become an artist. It wasn't like me figuring out the answer to that question. But I think at some point the penny dropped. And I do think that I saw that in being an actor, I could get the thing that maybe I didn't even know that I missed as a kid. But I think I did. I think there is a need that's in us, genetic or however you would call it, programmed in the human kid, the human child, to have, want to have a period where you play and your parents are watching or someone. You're being watched over. You're being watched while you play. So you're safe. I think that acting for me somehow is playing with someone watching. I guess my last question then, at the end of Anne, there is a... Uh really reflective, funny moment where she says thank you to her father and a kind of haphazard, lackluster thank you to her mother, but maybe fitting, perhaps definitely fitting. For yourself, beyond the approval of your parents, are you, Holland, happy with what you've done? Do you think you've done a good job? By job, you don't mean professionally. You're talking about, I mean, job sounds like a... I guess I mean both. Mm. I think I really have fallen short uh, in a way in my relationships. I don't mean just romantic ones at all. I mean relating to others. I don't think that I have developed at a very high level in how I relate. I have friends I love, I care very much about. I don't think I'm a great friend in the sense of how I do friendship compared to some people I know. Uh, talk about being there for your friends. I mean, I am there in some ways, but uh, to far fewer close friends than she. But I think in terms of just being in my own skin and living my life, and feeling like I really not made a mark, not at all. I think I have 
have real meaning in my life. I think that the the whole the whole run, the whole history of the play about Anne Richards, from the moment of thinking that I would create something to even to today, has been a really great journey that is an emblematic journey of what a human being can do. That isn't that you'd call an achievement. It's the only thing in my life that I would say. That is an achievement. That is an achievement. I agree. For what it's worth. Mm, it's worth a lot because you are really an artist at this. Well, I thank you so much for doing it with me. Uh, Holland Taylor, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for this remarkable conversation. our show. Special thanks this week to Ala Plotkin, Kelsey Manfield, and Britt Tumpletter. You can watch Anne Holland Taylor's portrait of the late great Governor Ann Richards Friday, June 19th on PBS. Be sure to check your local listings for times. To learn more about Holland and her work, be sure to visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. There you'll find some of the photos discussed in this episode that wonderfully silly clip from Bosom Buddies, and much, much more. If you enjoyed today's episode, I get the feeling, and I could be wrong, but I get the feeling you may like some other conversations we've had on this program. Conversations with Norman Lear, Gloria Steinem, Laura Dern, Alan Alda, Rob Reiner, and many, many more. You can find all of those on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you do your listening. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to drop us a line, send it on over to TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our editors are Andre Lynn, Kat Owen, and Eli Weiss. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our social media is by Kiran Aftab. Our intern is Patrice Lee. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, graphics by Ian Jones, and the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next Sunday with Dolores Huerta. Until then, have a safe week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, 
you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.